Good evening, and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden, tonight on Your Legal Rights, with the participation and assistance of the Labor and Employment Law Section of the California Lawyers Association, we're talking about the evolving world of labor and employment law. Profound societal, let's try that again, profound societal changes have a way of leaving imprints on our institutions in the way our government works and, yes, in the workplace. For the past few years, we've seen adjustments in the way we've treated historical figures, the relations and expectations between races, ethnicities, and genders, from harassment laws to the Black Lives Matter movement to the pandemic to a sluggish economy and a recognition that corporate boards don't reflect the community with all its members. And as with each of the last few years, the 2023 legislative session brought the passage of many bills directly affecting employers and employees throughout California. Tonight, as we start a new year, we are once again drawn to the labor and employment arena to see just what changes these events have left behind in the workplace. And as always, we're eager to hear what's on your mind and answer your questions. Our phone number right here is 415-841-4134. 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866 798 8255. That's 866-798-8255. And as always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic, labor and employment law. You're not limited to the exact point we may be in our conversation. And bear in mind that our guest can't provide you precise legal advice. They don't have all the facts relating to your case but they're here, they're happy to pass along the legal principles, assist you in your decision-making. And their guidance mightn't be the same positions of their respective employers or clients. They're here to help. Joining us tonight, a partner in the firm Atkinson, Andelson, Loya, Rude, and Romo, Thomas Lenz handles all aspects of labor and employment law issues and heads the firm's traditional labor and National Labor Relations Board practices. He works with employers all across the West, throughout all major industries, in California and the West. And Beth Mora of Mora Employment Law is dedicated to representing victimized employees. She's a passionate and accomplished advocate for those facing a wide range of employment law issues. Beth's commitment to social justice and volunteerism is deeply rooted in her personal values. Due to her advocacy, Beth is often invited to speak, has published numerous articles, as well as been quoted in legal journals, including Bloomberg Law, The Daily Journal, Law 360 on issues impacting employees and the legal community. And from the courthouse to the boardroom, Beth is a committed advocate for her clients and her community. And with that, Beth, Tom, welcome back to your legal rights. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Good evening. You know, before we started, we've been talking about some of the things that we've laid out for today. Um, One of the things that I found astounding and complex is the tangled web we weave when we talk about minimum wages. 
Can we start at the end and talk about minimum wage? <laughs> well, and I, I'm not sure it's the end. It's really the beginning for so many people. Um, I think most Californians and truly most Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And so minimum wage is just truly no joke. It's very important. Uh, so minimum wage is, is not the end. It's truly the beginning. From the perspective of somebody outside the issue, someone who's not affected by the law as an employer or an employee, and I'm trying to get a handle on just how complicated minimum wages, minimum wage rules have become. Is there a minimum wage throughout the state? Hit it, Tom. Yes, there is a state minimum wage, but in saying that, I think the answer needs to be um, really uh, expanded from there because California has a wealth of local minimum wages, either city or county. And so you know, even if you uh, you know think you're compliant with the state's minimum wage, you need to be careful where you do business, where you work because it could be a higher standard that uh, you must comply with. It, it seems so that, I'm sorry, Beth, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to highlight that the state minimum wage is January 1st of this year is $16. Um, and so uh, some of the fun highlights we're pointing out is, you know, every city and county has different minimum wages. Some may be 16, but some are very different. Emeryville is higher than Alameda. San Francisco is less than Emeryville. So look at where you are, as Tom pointed out. Yeah, and uh, we, we were talking about how uh, West Hollywood has the highest minimum wage in the state of California at $19.08 per hour. And then minimum wage will affect your overtime. It will affect your double time if you're eligible for those things. It will also affect your standard for whether or not you're an exempt employee and what the math is for that. So minimum wage isn't really the end. It's it's truly the beginning for all sorts of things. Yeah, one of the things that uh, I tell uh, the employers that I work with is, you know, if you're you know dealing in an area that's regulated by uh, federal, state, and local law, you always need to comply with the strictest standard. Uh, in other words, pay the highest rate uh, so that you're in compliance with all of the applicable uh, standards to your business and uh, you know, to, to treat your employees properly. And uh, I think it's really important to note, uh, Jeff, do you have any idea what the federal minimum wage is? I don't imagine it's the 15 or $16 that most places are paying these days. You could barely get a cup of coffee with it in California. It's $7.25 per hour. So uh, people of California, you should be grateful that your state cares more about you in this regard than uh, it appears the federal government does. One of the other things that really strikes me is how you could move a matter of blocks and without realizing it, have a big effect on what you have to pay people. By way of example, if you're in the city of San Mateo, as of January 1st, the minimum wage is $17.35. But if you're just outside of the city limits, so that you're in the unincorporated area of San Mateo County, adjacent to San Mateo, 
everybody uses your San Mateo address, but you're not within the corporate limits, it's 30 cents less. It's $17.06 effective on the same day. And up and down the state, there's no end of cities and unincorporated areas where it could mean one a difference one way or the other. Where Los Angeles County unincorporated is higher than the city of Los Angeles. It's throughout the whole state. There's no end in the variance. Yeah, and one of the things as a an, an employee attorney, I will say to people is don't just look at the minimum wage. Uh, state of California, yes, is a thought leader in employee-friendly laws, but actually cities and counties can be shockingly and heartwarmingly thought leaders in how they deal with employee issues. Um, and often people will immediately assume that's L.A. or San Francisco, but that's not always the truth. They are. Yes, you should look at um, city and county of San Francisco um, rules. For example, San Francisco led the way in breastfeeding accommodations um, years ago, and L.A. has led the way in many other different ways. But you should look at your city and county in which you live and work and see if there are employee-friendly or employer requirements that you didn't think of, not just minimum wage. Because it is quite amazing what different cities and counties have have come up with and what they're putting in place that is not actually statewide, but is very specific to your city and county. So definitely pay attention. And if you're interested, talk to your local legislator. You never know what you can get on the books yourself. And even with that, we're not done. I mentioned, no, how, <laughs> I mentioned how complex minimum wages are, but apparently we've got breakout industries that are on a completely different legal plane. Um, the next one that comes to mind is healthcare law, and nobody really knows what the minimum wage is going to be. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why? Yeah, so the healthcare, there was a, a real amazing bill that came out um, that was signed into law at the end of last year. It's um, SB 525 uh, that uh, was effective, will be effective June 1st, 2024. Um, it was uh, to amend the minimum wage for healthcare workers. And it really put into place uh, an amazing structure that starting January 1st of this year, um, the minimum wage would go to $25 for healthcare workers, but it, it created an, a, a real detailed stratosphere of wages, depending on how many workers, what you did, and then, and it kept growing. Um, and it, it was a lot of work. It, it really was important because it came out of recognizing how hard it is to be a healthcare worker. We all recognized that after the last four years. It was an extremely difficult, emotional job. Uh, but then, you know, we had a billion-dollar predicted shortfall from the governor. He did a, a presentation last week on Wednesday, and now there's discussions to see if there's going to be some potential amendment to this bill. We don't know. So, again, it's effective June 1st of 2024. So it actually hasn't gone into effect yet, even though it was signed at the end of last year. So who knows what will happen? And what I have thought was even more interesting is that the amount we pay to fast food workers after the first of the year is so much higher than what we have to pay to our healthcare workers. 
Can you explain that a little bit? And I would challenge either of you to try to justify that. Why do we think it's more important to pay more money to fast food workers than we do to healthcare workers? Can I tell you you're wrong? <laughs> the math is your math is wrong. I'm open to hearing it. Maybe you're <laughs> okay. telling me there's a little more sanity left than what was originally what was originally told us at the first of the year. So if my math is wrong, I'm all for it. So Tom, I'll let you go first if you think I'm wrong. But um, for the fast food council bill, so we're looking at AB 228, the Holden bill. Um, So it's called, or the FAST Act, depending on who wants to talk, how you want to address it. Um, The bill would require hourly minimum wage for fast food restaurant employees to be $20 per hour effective April 1st, 2024. So the healthcare workers, it's um, June 1st, 2024, uh, it would be 25 an hour. That's the starting minimum. But there's a huge scale for the healthcare workers that goes much, much higher, depending on how many years and what type of facility, um, whereas the, the the fast food workers, it's $20 an hour. So it sounds like what you're telling me is that the reason that the the reason that most commercial media was talking about fast food versus healthcare is simply because it kicked in a couple months sooner. Um it could also be because I don't know, maybe because it's more salacious. I don't know. I don't I, I couldn't even pretend to understand what the media is doing. Well, the fast food uh, uh, rates and uh, a a lot of rules relating to that industry took effect, generated a huge pushback from the industry. There was a proposition that was uh, put forth uh, for the election, and then everything was resolved legislatively, uh, really sort of a compromise to get that proposition off the ballot. So I I think that you're really talking about different industries with different lobbying. Uh, certainly, I, I think each um, you know, a group of employees uh, and you know, related labor unions pushing for this uh, legislation you know, certainly wanted to improve the lot for the employees working in these industries, but you know, they, they took you know, different paths to get where they are. But, um, so yeah, it'll be different rates, different timing and so forth. But um, yeah, in terms of societal value, of healthcare versus fast food. Uh, I, I'm not going to comment on that. I, I represent people in both industries. So, uh, and uh, I, I, I value, uh, you know, both industries. So, you know, that being said, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, sometimes these uh, situations take a path and uh, achieve timing, which is not always uh, you know, making sense to the general public uh, when, when these rules uh, hit uh, for, you know, application or analysis. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden, and tonight we're discussing new laws in labor and employment. My guest, Tom Lenz, a partner at Atkinson, Andelson, Loya, Root, and Romo in Pasadena, and Beth W. Mora of Mora Employment. And my guests are here to help. If you have questions for my guests, our phone number is 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 
800-826-8255. As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic, that's labor and employment law. You're not limited to the point we may be in our conversation. So let's move on. And one of the discussions we've heard repeated of late has to do with workplace violence and various ideas about protecting it. What's What kinds of things have changed there? You want me to talk about it, Tom, or you want to introduce it? Um, yeah, um, you, you can start, Beth. <laughs> okay. So there was two pieces of legislation that came out of the 2023 year that um, one is effective July 1st of 2024, And that's the Workplace Restraining Orders and Prevention Plan. That's SB 553, where employers will have will be required to establish and implement as well as maintain um, plans in the workplace, effective workplace prevention, workplace violence prevention plans. And the employer will, in essence, have these plans that, you know, I think Tom will actually cover this part better. Um, and I'll let him cover that uh, better because he comes from the employment defense perspective. But I will tell you from the plaintiff perspective, I'm very pleased to see this um, from representing employees that have suffered domestic violence and, and, and had it come into the workplace, but also violence in the workplace. The other component that came out of this year is the temporary restraining orders or protective orders and employee harassment under SB 428 where employers will now be able to seek restraining orders um, and we're getting an injunction upon clear and convincing evidence on behalf of their employee who has been harassed or suffered unlawful violence or credible threat of violence in the workplace. Um, And that actually was never truly clear. And so there was often this push pull and struggle between an employee and the employer. If the employee felt they needed to get this uh, restraining order And if anyone's ever had to deal with restraining orders before, there is actually a restraining order form that says a workplace restraining order. And then if they go to the court, the court's like, why isn't the employer filing this? And it often created a bounce back um, stressful situation. So this law really clarifies that and gives a lot more power and clarity um, and makes employees feel safer that they're in this together. And so it's very something employees feel uh, pleased with, I would argue. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, with the high visibility of violence in the workplace, um, an issue that just doesn't seem to be going away, SB 553 is a step in the right direction. It's uh, going to require that employers have a workplace violence prevention plan in place by July 1. And there's certain elements that uh, will be required of that. And you're going to have to uh, identify a person who will be responsible for carrying out that plan. Uh, There's going to be training requirements uh, related to uh, workplace violence prevention. And uh, this is going to, you know, really uh, add to uh, the obligations employers have. Uh, They already have to create something called an injury and illness prevention program. This is going to uh, raise the bar and... Uh, you're going to have to train people on things, uh, you know, related to the law and ways that employees can assist in uh, dealing with preventing workplace violence. There's record keeping that's required. Uh, there are duties to investigate. So it is 
uh, going to uh, call upon employers to do more. And, uh, you know, we're actively working with employers to get these plans together so that they will be in place to make sure that everybody's safer. And then uh, there are also some duties. If you have a union relationship, you uh, are going to need to work with the union that uh, is representing your employees to make sure that everybody's in sync. And uh, honestly, in, in collective bargaining relationships, uh, we uh, we do typically run changes in rules by the union. So th- this is this is a good development to try to keep people safer at work and to ensure that there is a standard. Is there a minimum size or minimum number of employees before these reporting requirements kick in? Fabulous question. That I actually do not know. Let me look it up. I I do appreciate. I just want to point out that I on the Zoom I saw Tom looking at me. <laughs> um I don't see it, but that doesn't mean it isn't there. Um let me project this way is that I would like to argue that all employers should have a safety plan regardless of the minimum required because what we're seeing is situations that if someone complains of a safety and it's not dealt with in an equal non-discriminatory fashion then it becomes an issue of that person's overreacting and then that person then claims it's a bias so safety is not just smart for everybody and keeps the workplace safe and harmonious and moving smoothly it then avoids further problems in the future that I promise you don't want to see me complaining about. Yeah, Jeff, I have an answer for you. Um, hey. Yeah, we're basically looking at a threshold of 10 employees. That's a great number. The, that would be a plaintiff's attorney. The law exempts workplaces uh, with less than 10 employees. And it's uh, yeah, something where, you know, if you're going back and forth, if you're you know, you know, running between eight and twelve employees at any given time, you you may uh, want to you know consider yourself covered and you know do what you need to do because um, yeah, I I think the law is going to be interpreted in a way to try to protect the maximum number of people. Let me turn it over to Sarah Beth from San Francisco. Welcome to your legal rights. Hello. Sarah Beth, hi. You're on the air. Welcome to your legal hi. rights. Oh, yeah, thank you. Um, my question is going back to the healthcare workers raise that you were talking about a few minutes ago. I'm wondering, is that for also going to include in-home supported services and certified nursing assistants and other home health aides? Thank you. I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you, Sarah Beth. And, and I think Sarah Beth poses... A really interesting question, and that really comes down to what is the reach of this minimum wage for for healthcare workers? Does it reach the home healthcare worker? Um, and and I appreciate that Sarah Beth for Sarah Beth's question. I appreciate she wanted it off the air, but I do want to uh, flag for everyone because this is a really important piece of legislation. There are so many healthcare workers. Um, There's so many different types of facilities. Um, There's private, there's public, there's large hospitals, there's smaller hospitals or clinics. Um, The 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 piece of legislation, SB 525, 
has what they call covered health care employees. And they have a definition for employees and they have a definition for facilities. Um, and so it's actually really important to review the both definitions. And the, to be fair, the definitions are pretty uh, significant. They are not truly designed for smaller facilities and small like home health care. But, Tom, I think you're uh, about to give more of a, de- a delineated definition. Uh, yes, I, I have um, a short list uh, for each that uh, I, I think in the uh, interest of clarity, uh, it may be helpful to uh, review. Uh, in terms of facilities, we're talking about general acute care hospitals and psychiatric hospitals, integrated health care delivery systems, skilled nursing facilities owned, operated, or controlled by a hospital, a patient's home when healthcare services are delivered by an entity owned or operated by a general acute care hospital or acute psychiatric hospital, dialysis clinics, specialty clinics, surgical clinics, and outpatient clinics, urgent care clinics, and last but not least, physician groups. So that's a lot, but uh, it's, it, it's not specific to home healthcare. Right, but, but there is that one carve out where if you're going home, into the individual's home, but it has to be ordered by a certain type of facility. So you're going to want to read the care, the code carefully. And again, that's SB 525. And the way you're going to get to it by any general person who happens to be trying to find out if you fall under it, just type in minimum wage for healthcare workers 2024. Yeah. And the definition of employee is really broad. Um, it's, you know, if you're an employee of a healthcare facility or you're providing services in support of a healthcare facility, uh, contract employees. So yeah, I, I think, yeah, I completely agree with Beth. And of course your best option, if you really want to know for sure would be to follow up with an attorney that practices in this area that's unique to it. But Sarah Beth brought up a very interesting question, and that's the reach of some of these laws. Uh, this came up in terms of the minimum wage for health care. But just by way of example, we were talking about minimum wages for fast food. Is that only for workers within California? Or if I was organized in California, does it reach my employees wherever they are? Mm. That's a Tom question. <laughs> yeah, and that that uh, set of rules has been in flux uh, in, in recent months. But I, I would I would tend to believe that you know uh, it's going to be people within California, unless for some reason you are directed by someone in California to some out of state place. But um, yeah, I, I would I would probably suggest a a careful review of the statute language itself because I I don't have a quick answer to that question. And that was um, last year's AB 257? Are you talking about the Fast Food Council? The Fast Food Council. Well, it's irrelevant. Whatever the issue is we're talking about, you can today... Google the phrasing that we're talking about, whether it's the fast food councils, whether it's the health care minimum wage with SB 525. You don't have to remember yeah, all these the AB rules. Yeah, the AB 
1228-1228 Holden is the Fast Food Council. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW San Francisco. We'll be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden, and tonight we're talking about new laws in labor and employment law, some new relationships, some new wage. It's wide open to whatever you want to talk about. My guest, Thomas Lenz, a partner in Atkinson Andelson, lawyer, Rude Romo in Pasadena, and Beth W. Mora of Mora Employment are here to help. If you have questions for my guests, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, 415-841-4134. If you're outside the San Francisco Bay Area, 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. You can call regarding any question. You want to talk about labor and employment law? You want to talk about new laws in labor and employment. You don't have to jump to where we are in our conversation. And where we are is when we talk about wages, everybody presumes it means when we're at work. But there are some new laws about sick leave, isn't, aren't there, for this coming year? Yes, there are definitely new laws about sick leave. There's a few uh, new laws about sick leave. There's... Um, Paid sick days, SB 616, Gonzalez. This bill would extend paid sick days in California from three to five days. Um, that's one of the few. Before you um, jump, where does that kick in? Is that any employee? You have to give them sick time? That just extended the current paid sick leave law in California, which still require that you worked at an employee, I think, think it was 30 days before the paid sick leave kicked in. You you couldn't just magically start and get paid sick leave. And I didn't mean to cut you off. You were No, 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 that's You were listing. Um there was a few other changes to um let's see. There's a few other new laws this year, let's see about sick time. Was it leave uh, for reproductive loss this year? That's SB 848 as well. This bill made it unlawful for employers, uh, for an unlawful employment practice for an employer to refuse to grant and request by an eligible employee employee to take up to five days of reproductive loss leave following a reproductive loss event. And in that statute as well, that was SB 848, uh, Rubio, that statute also defined what a reproductive loss was. What is a reproductive loss? A reproductive loss in this time also included um, fertility losses. It included adoption losses. Um, it was a, pro- a broad 
um, miscarriage. Um, uh, it, it included a very broad definition and the code was very good. It was very California. Let me put it that way. Um, we're good in this state um, about protecting reproductive rights. Um, and we have some really strong legislators who made sure to say, you know, we hear our voters and we're re- we were protecting reproductive rights. You know, as in a lot of the things we've been talking about, the obvious question that comes to mind is the breadth and the reach of such a provision. Clearly, when we see this, we think of a married couple who may have lost their child. Then we think of a couple, maybe they're not married, but they have a child together or they're anticipating a child together and they lose the child. It's a terrific tragedy. And clearly, this is what the legislature had in mind. But what about what about a, somebody who's looking to adopt and it's the surrogate that loses a child and you're only a ways in? I mean, what I'm really getting at is, is there some point that we could say this is inside, this is contemplated by the law and – Maybe this is not contemplated by the law. Uh, reproductive loss under the statute. I don't know if it actually covers surrogacy, but is it that does. what you're, it does? Way to go, Tom, for the save. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm it, that felt very much like what was that game show that they had where it was the pyramid game in the 70s and we had to guess something correctly? Felt like that. I really appreciate you getting the high score. Absolutely. Thank you, big brain. So whether it's surrogacy, whether it's in or outside of marriage, whether it's adoption that fell through, it sounds like this is a very broad reach. Well, as someone who adopted and unfortunately had to go through several option times before it, it, it uh, was successful and had to reschedule all my court hearings and was not accommodated all, a lot, uh, I very much appreciated this legislation. Um, and uh, I hope no one has to struggle to get accommodation for these things, but I know many women who do. Um, so let's just hope that they don't get discriminated against, but this is great piece of legislation. And th- these are issues where uh, employers need to be ahead of the curve and updating their policies um, and making sure that their managers are aware uh, of these updates so that employees uh, receive the leave uh, to which they are entitled by California law. Um, I-, I think that you know if, if you fail to uh, you know, keep yourself aware and update your rules. Uh, you, you risk uh, legal co- legal claims from employees, and uh, you know, just being in a place you don't want to be. And we can all think of exceptions that may or may not work. We can all think of situations that may or may not be covered by the law. But the only way an employer is going to know for sure, the only way an employee is going to know for sure, is when they talk to attorneys that practice in this area of employment or labor law who are willing to take a few minutes with them and look it up and say, yes, you're inside. Uh, You're inside the protections of this sphere. 
one of the more interesting new laws that's kicking in comes to mind from the news in the last several days where we have a president who is facing um, a defamation lawsuit and it really came down to people, someone that put up her hand up in, in the air and said, yes, me too, me too. And the denial that came from that and the defamation loot that case that followed, it looks that that seems to parallel some legislation that we have pending in California. So I won't ask you to talk about uh, former President Trump's case, but can you tell us a little bit about the defamation law in AB 933? Yeah, I'm extremely excited to talk to you about AB 933. I will definitely sidestep uh, national politics, but thank you for the segue. Um, AB 933 is a piece of legislation close to my heart, is very much a part of my everyday form of uh, litigation and practice. Um, and I have to acknowledge that I'm biased about it because I helped with the team who helped write it um, and I helped work with them and I, I testified on this bill twice. So please acknowledge my bias now. Um, a, uh, AB 933 comes out of that world of Me Too. It comes out of the world of Johnny Depp suing Amanda Heard or Kesha being sued and it's when women came forward, the um, people that they came forward about then sued them for defamation. And that's used as what we call a DARVO tool, a tool attacking the victim to silence them. Um, and most victims coming forward don't have the money to offset uh, defamation claims. And so to bring the defamation claim is designed to silence them because they don't have those monies. So what AB 933 is... It's to protect survivors from sex, of sexual assault, harassment, discrimination from defamation lawsuits by clarifying that statements made in good faith about their experiences are a form of protected speech. And this bill also provided relief to the survivors in the form of reasonable attorney's fees and damages for successfully defending themselves against these meritless defamation lawsuits. Um, and unfortunately, there was extremely painful stories from survivors who had spent years defending against um, def defamation lawsuits by their um, harassers, assaulters um, for this legislation. Um, it was very hard to testify with them because they had to be re-victimized every time they testified about it. So very excited about this piece of legislation, but that doesn't mean everyone should run out and try to post something on social media. They should still talk to an attorney <laughs> about what they want to say. And there's lots of handbooks out there about what you should and shouldn't post. There's a lot of people posting on social media. Be very careful. Uh, this isn't a, a free for all pass. This is to protect you when you're a victim. So I think these are really good points that, that Beth is making. And, you know, what you do put out there in the public is, is certainly something that uh, is visible and can be can be used to, you know, question what you might have to say. But I, I think at its core, these rules are uh, going to ensure that uh, people who are victims, you know, the sort of victims that employers are, are trained to, uh, you know, protect, uh, pe people are required to have policies and training uh, you know, to prevent uh, harassment and discrimination and uh, to, to 
to protect those who raise those issues. It's it's really uh, there to, I think, help ensure that people are not silenced, that people are able to tell their story. And uh, certainly, you know, the, these sorts of uh, accounts are, are are gripping, they're troubling. Um, and uh, if you're on the receiving end of it, um, you know, you, you may not be, uh, you know, very happy about that. But uh, you know, people are allowed to to make allegations, and I think very key is um, that it's you know, protective of statements made without malice. And that's the key: without malice. And if in doubt, some basic common sense: count to ten before you post. Don't post things when you're really upset. Let things calm down. Maybe have someone review it. Because the post will be there long after you've calmed down. Actually, there's a great toolkit that was issued by um, the National Women's Law Center. And it's a toolkit that talks to you. It was written actually by victims of assault, sexual assault, harassment, who were then threatened with defamation claims. And they wrote it in conjunction with the aid of attorneys and said, you know, this is a toolkit about how you speak. Uh, and deal with potential defamation claims. So that was written by the National Women's Law Center. Um, and then there's another one by Legal Momentum that does a similar type of toolkit. And I understand there's a lot of drive for people to put their messaging out there, but that pause is smart. And also looking at some of these free resources is is really smart. And then, of course, talking to an attorney if these things happen. Um, protecting yourself physically and mentally is smart. Many years of Star Trek series, there's always the Klingon phrase, revenge is a dish best served cold. I had uh, no idea that came from Star Trek. <laughs> let's move on. Um, some of the same old issues that we've spoken of in myriad arenas are factoring into this year's employment laws. For example, we've talked about cannabis use. I remember before cannabis was legalized, before we called it cannabis, and the law at that time involved medical marijuana and an employer that fired somebody for what he did outside of his employee. And it seems that that has changed. So I see that there are some new laws reflecting cannabis use, the legality of it, and what an employer can or can't do. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Oh, that's all you, Tom. <laughs> sure. Um, a couple of years ago, um, legislation in AB 2188 got the ball rolling on uh, this issue, and um uh, more recently, SB 700 taking effect January uh, of this year, uh, it makes it unlawful for an employer to discriminate against a person in hiring or other aspects of employment uh, for either off-duty cannabis use away from the workplace. Uh, so you can't do it in the workplace, but you, uh, if you do it away from the workplace, uh, you, you may have legal protection. Uh, and uh, it also uh, addresses when an employer requires a drug screening test uh, because uh, what an employer uh, must now do is uh, ensure that that test 
uh, looks for psychoactive properties. So uh, tests previously uh, looked for things that did not affect someone's state of mind. Uh, and uh, that might last longer than the actual effects of the cannabis. So uh, we've been telling employers for a couple of years now, you need to update your tests. You need to make sure that you're testing for the right stuff. Uh, because if you don't, uh, you may be uh, in violation of this new standard. So uh, what uh, I, I think is very interesting, like so many laws, you have industries uh, and sectors of the economy that have lobbied and convinced uh, the legislators, don't cover us because we have certain special interests, whatever they might be. So my construction industry clients are uh, exempt from this. Uh, people who work under federal contracts are, uh, to some extent, exempt from this. Uh, keep in mind that uh, cannabis remains a controlled substance uh, unlawful under federal law. Uh, so you, you have the state saying that off-duty use is uh, protected against discrimination. So yeah, th this is going to, I think, create some new issues. Uh, it's something that employers need to address in policies and training to make sure that uh, they uh, respect employee protections, but also maintain a health, a healthy and uh, safe workforce. Uh, if you have somebody under the influence uh, at work, you need to be using the right test if you were going to go down the road of testing. And I imagine that if you were an employer that runs a big box warehouse store, this law may look a little different for the person driving a forklift than the person answering the phones. I, I think that, uh, yeah, the safety uh, considerations, uh, you know, will vary depending upon one's position. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the real prospect of putting people in danger, um, it, you know, especially if you're operating, you know, a forklift or, or other equipment, certainly that's, uh, that's a concern. So, yeah, if you're using, distributing, um, whatever on premises during working time and working areas, that's going to be problematic regardless. But, uh, yeah, it, it's the off-duty use that is uh, the subject of protection. Nancy from Berkeley, you're on the air. Welcome to your legal rights. Thanks so much. I um, This is about the workplace violence. Is there a way to anonymously let a workplace know that they should be on extra alert because one of their employees is being, has this at-risk behavior, volatile, unstable, um, outside of the workplace and making threats to people and so on and has not made any imminent threats nor any threats about talking about the workplace. However, um, I imagine that an employer would want to know that at least one of their employ employees is, you know, fits this. No, this person is very well-behaved at work right now. He's a good worker, very skilled, learning, picking up a new skill, and he's just great. But, um, you know, but elsewhere, he's, he's, he's acting out and not stable, also drinking very heavily. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's a military veteran who likes to let people know that he's very well trained 
and you know the the threats that he is strongly implying and so um you should should an employer know and can you can you let them know anonymously maybe through a third party that they should know that one of their employees is not stable this way so what what Nancy's asking is pretty straight up is there a way to anonymously tell your employer we may want to keep an eye on this one because they know how to turn it off or on like a switch or maybe just the opposite. They don't know how to control it and you haven't seen what this person's capable of. They may be great today, but there's a risk there. How do you let the employer know? Well, I'm specifically wondering how to let them, without even telling them which employee, because if the employee finds out that they were, if, if, if somehow it got back to the employee that they were the ones you know, at risk, that they were named to be at risk, um, it could easily be traced back to, you know, the person who reported it. So is there a way to tell the employer, we're not telling you who's saying it, we're not telling you who we're looking at, but somebody needs to be watched. You you just need to step up your game. Right, right. Yeah, so... I'm really sorry to hear about this question because it, it indicates a great level of concern and stress. Um, and, and I want to acknowledge that right away. It also indicates that you're in a really difficult situation about how to report. Um, and so the size of the company indicates a problem. So I'm going to suggest in a situation like this, which I honestly know that right now, if I was in any other situation, I'd ask you 15 questions. I would suggest you would call um, a legal aid and ask some more questions about how to safely report. Because it doesn't sound like a legal situation based on a statute and reporting, actually, even under the new code. It's more about getting guidance about how to smartly report, because I don't think the code itself is the issue. It's more about how to navigate it and getting some help. So real quick, and I've mentioned this before, um, I want you to look at Legal Aid at Work, and they have Mm -hmm. about... 14 different legal aid clinics across the state. I think maybe it's 12. I'm sorry, I could say the number wrong. And see if you can get a clinic assistance um, and have someone help guide you on, on how to report in a way that makes you feel safe, if, mm-hmm. if possible. I unfortunately don't think so much it's a code issue at this point. Okay. And I'm so sorry we can't do a quicker answer in this setting. Thanks. It's extremely uh, helpful what you said. And, and, and um, by the way, look at their free fact sheets. They might have mm-hmm. some answers or sample letters, though, in this in the okay. meantime, too. Okay. Okay, that's great. And because it just it it, I guess it could happen so easily. An employee, you know, just so well behaved um, at yeah. work, and you just but, you, they, but it, you brought up an important question for any listener. And just like they say at a hospital, if you call a doctor and you think it's an emergency, you don't wait for the doctor. You don't wait for reporting. You just call 911. Anytime they would rather it be an unnecessary emergency and be nothing, you just don't wait. Great. Thank you so, so, so much on behalf of anyone who would be otherwise affected by all the ripples. (laughs) You take care of yourself. Nancy, Thank you too, Nancy, best of luck. We feel for you. We hope Thank we've been of some help. Oh, so much. Thank you so much. You know, we really have very limited time, and I did want to bring up one last issue, um, and that has to do with 
what used to be very commonplace in the workplace, you would go to work and you would agree that you're not going to jump to one of the other com- uh, competition. You're, not, you're signing a non-competing agreement. What is the status of those right now? Well, and I'm just going to real quickly point out that two pieces of le- legislation were passed this year to confirm already existing law in California that non-competition agreements are not enforceable. And we, and as plaintiffs' attorneys, we want to thank the legislators for in confirming those pieces of legislation. Um, and that's Carrillo um, SB six nine nine and Rebecca Assemblymember Rebecca Barakan AB one zero seven six. It is existing law that they are unenforceable in California. Um, because almost 60 plus percent of California still has a form of non-competition language in their employment documents, even new hire documents, the legislation was put on the books, though, to remind employers that, yeah, no, you can't do this because most people don't actually know what's other than what's in their documents. So one of the pieces of legislation, AB 1076, codified existing case law reminding people they're prohibited. They're not enforceable. And as of February 14th of this year, employers need to send notifications to their employees that they're not enforceable. So employees aren't misled by what is in their documents. And just to be very clear, nothing that Beth has said is meant to say you can take trade secrets or that type of work product with you. That's verboten still. That's totally different. Yeah. But in terms of your ability to move from one employer to another, you've been that, unleashed. That, that's absolutely right. And uh, above and beyond California law, we also have uh, federal agencies looking at non-competes. So uh, this is an issue that's getting a lot of attention at different levels. Um, our friend Joe Kaufman from the National Labor Relations Board is you know, very likely going to be enforcing um, policy that uh, her agency has put out uh, to ban the uh, non-competes and, and also um, yeah, activity from the Federal Trade Commission may also you know, come into play. So um, California considers everybody to have a right to earn a living and you know, to, to take that away with the non-compete would be against public policy. And what, what if anything has been codified is there really a need to codify em- employees that have been displaced? We had a pandemic. A lot of people were pushed out. A lot of employers have been shut down. Now they're back. Is there anything with regard to employees and the, and the manner in which we bring them back? Ooh, what were you getting at? Let me see. Were you getting at the retaliation legislation or were you getting at the COVID rehiring and retention legislation? The right to recall? The COVID retention legislation, that's SB 723. Ah, yes. So the rehiring and retention SB 723 um, is uh, extending a bill from December 31st, 2024 to December 31st, 2025. It, it, the sudden setting of the right to recall for employees in the hospitality and service industry um, provisions and presumptions that a separation date due to a lack of business reduction in force or other economic non-disciplinary reasons due to a reason related to COVID 
unless the employer establishes otherwise by a preponderance of evidence. So they have the right to recall because of COVID. So we're essentially out of time, out of time but I'd like to give each of you about 30 seconds to a minute for any final thoughts you wanted to convey. Tom, um, you want, I'm sorry, Beth, yeah. you want to go first? No, no, we'll let Tom go first if he wants. Oh, I think Tom's frozen. Beth, so I think I'll... you have a little more time then. <laughs> no, I would just say that um, 2024 is not likely to be as an exciting of the years we deal with budgets. Um, but I still want to wish everyone a, a good year, encourage them to take care of themselves because it's starting out stressful for all different other reasons and geopolitical reasons. So take care of yourself. Ask for help from outsiders like attorneys if something goes wrong in the workplace. And just pay attention to yourself and pay attention to your rights if you think something is wrong. It's, it's, it, it, it's, it's panning out to look like a stressful year. So just please take care of yourself. And Tom, I see you're back happily. Do you have any last thoughts? You know, maybe thirty seconds to a minute. Yeah, just in time. My connection froze. Uh, I, I think that yeah, as with any other new year, uh, it's going to be important to educate yourself uh, on these new laws to make sure that your policies are updated if you are running a business, um, and if you're an employee, to make sure you're aware of uh, these rules, these policies. Uh, you want to make sure that what you do is consistent with what you're putting out there as uh, your your rules of, of doing business. Because if you are inconsistent or non-compliant, you are at risk of getting tagged. So I, uh, yeah, I commend anybody who's ahead of the curve and prepared. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW FM 91.7, San Francisco Bay Area. Tonight we've been talking about labor law employment laws, new laws in 2024. My guests tonight have been Beth W. Mora of Mora Employment Law and Thomas Lenz, a partner at Atkinson, Andelson, Loya, Rude, and Romo in Pasadena. Tonight's show was produced by yours truly. Do you have landlord-tenant law questions? Please be sure to join your legal rights again next week, Wednesday at 6, when, as always, we'll take your calls and answer your questions. A big thanks to tonight's guests, and to the Labor and Employment section of the California Lawyers Association. And on behalf of your legal rights, a big thanks to all of you for listening. And at the controls, Joanne Marr. I'm Jeff Hayden. Be safe and zealously guard your legal rights. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information.